Thank you, Miss Susan. You can find a great source for that in Psalm chapter 91. If you'd like to go and read that passage at some time today and be reminded of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6. And as I've been thinking and preparing to preach this passage this week, I said, which part of John chapter 6 am I going to preach? There's really three main portions of John 6. There's the first 15 verses that focus on Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the miraculous event that that was when he was confronted with that extremely large group of people and he fed them from one small boy's lunch. There is the next seven or eight verses where Jesus leaves and his disciples attempt to cross the sea by themselves and they are unable to because of the storm. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And that's an incredible passage to look at as well. And then there's the last portion of the chapter where Jesus has these ongoing discussions with his disciples, the religious leaders, and others on what it means when he says, I am the bread of life. And I'm going to read that to you, John chapter 6 and verse 35. And that's where we're going to begin today and with this reminder. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's a couple of reminders as we begin to look at the Gospel of John. And then the first one is this, that the Gospel of John, and none of the Gospels actually, are biographical. They do share the truths of Jesus' life, but they only share certain portions of it. For example, if you were to start reading in John chapter 1 today, and you were to read all the way through John chapter 6, you would realize something. In John chapter 2, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for a Passover. And four short passages later, or three short passages later, in John chapter 6, once again Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem for a Passover. John has essentially skipped an entire year of Jesus' life, and he tells us later on that if I wrote everything down that Jesus did, it would be more than the world could contain. So what he is doing is he is looking back at the Old Testament scriptures and he is taking certain settings and certain teachings that Jesus taught and miracles that he performed and John is using those things to show the Israelites of that day that Jesus was the true Messiah. And then he is leaving it for his initial readers and us thousands of years later to look and say, this Jesus is this same Messiah, this same person that the prophets promised and the others told about. This is him as well. In fact, he says, I've written it so that you might have eternal life. And we're going to discuss that word phrase, eternal life, in just a few minutes as well. And I want to challenge us with it. So John chooses these key moments and teachings to present Jesus as the Messiah. And so, too, I think we must do the same as well. And so, while I could preach each of the individual passage, I really want to just kind of give us an overview of this entire chapter, but focusing on what Jesus means by, I am the bread of life. And I want to give you a couple of passages you may want to write down or think about uh, for you to go back later and consider. When Jesus begins to talk about the bread of life, he challenges the Jews, and they challenge him with the story of manna. And the story of manna can be found in Exodus chapter 16 and Numbers chapter 11. And Jesus said that what he is doing on that day is the same thing that happened when he sent them manna from heaven. And so I would like for you to think about that 
And so he's doing that in the perspective. For example, some of you, if I said uh, Braves World Series, you would know and you could think about that exact time, that exact period. If I were to pick any other sports teams, um, used to be you could say these ones very easily, the Cubs and the Red Sox, and none of y'all would know about it, but it has happened lately, unfortunately. But you would know those things. You would know those settings. If I were to talk about the Falcons and the Super Bowl, oh, that didn't happen, sorry. <coughs> it was right there, it just didn't happen. Um, we're almost past the point of being able to talk about Georgia and, national, Georgia and a national champion and people be able to remember, right? And what happens is when I say those phrases in your mind, you can go to those places if you were around. Uh, we may even think of tragedies or times of loss like that. Uh, people that are in love sciences, when you say things, I don't know if y'all saw this, but this past week they got the Hubble telescope back working. I didn't realize that thing was still out there. I think I was a kid when they put it up there. But, I mean, when you say phrases like that, you think about what that meant and how it impacted you at the time. And so Jesus is using illustrations that these Jews would have known intricately, and he's looking them in the face and saying, it's not what you thought it was. You thought it was about you, and I'm telling you that it's about me. So let's remind ourselves quickly about what manna was. Manna was God's ultimate proof to the Israelites, that they were out of Egypt because of God. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, if you read the story, they get in this wilderness, and it's called the wilderness of sin. I think Moses probably named it that because they get distracted and they just are all about themselves. They get angry. And they look at Moses and Aaron and they say, we're here because of you. It's your fault. Now, they forgot the ten plagues that God sent, but evidently they were willing to presume that God didn't send those plagues. Maybe Moses and Aaron had just done those things. They even essentially pretended that the Red Sea crossing had never happened, that the whatever weather phenomenon that God allowed to happen that allowed the Israelites to cross that portion of the sea in that period of time, they think it just happened. Now, I know when I say that, the Sunday school response in Daniel, and potentially in yourself, is to say, well, if I'd walked through an ocean where the wind had pushed the water back, that wouldn't be me. But more than likely, Bible scholars have told us, they walked along this shelf that was in the ocean, and this weather phenomenon that God allowed and sent pushed it back. And so the Jews thought, well, you know, it's kind of weird, and it's kind of odd, but it happened, and Moses took advantage of it, and here we are in this wilderness. But they got in the wilderness, and they realized one thing really quickly. There was no food, and they were going to die. And they began to complain. And God said, to, and Moses said, God, you've got to come and get these people. I don't want anything to do with it. And God said to Moses, I'm going to do something for them that is going to prove to them that I brought them here. And he began to drop bread from the sky every single night. And nights one to five, if you kept it overnight in your tent, it would spoil and rot and be full of maggots in the morning. Night number six, if you kept it overnight in your tent, you'd wake up the next morning and it would be just as fresh as it was the morning before. And God was doing this miraculous event to prove that he was there and that he was in control. And he references that to the children of Israel later, thousands of years later, when he stands in front of them after he's broken this bread and fed this large magnificent crowd 
And he says, just as manna was given you in the wilderness, so too I am the bread of life. And the challenge for us and the challenge for me is to realize what God is saying to them, which subsequently he is saying to us, is are you willing to acknowledge the presence of God? So as we look at this passage, we think about this crowd of people that would have been there that day. The scripture says there were 5,000 men. Why was it numbered 5,000 men? Well, they just simply counted how many heads of families were there. Who were the heads of the families? Let me give you a couple illustrations that will give you an idea of how this crowd could have been much larger than 5,000, but it really doesn't matter to me whether it was or not. But you could have had 20 or 30,000 people there easily. They're heading up for the Passover. If your family could go, you would take them with you. It's a family event. In fact, it was a family event in Jesus' life. Do you remember at the age of 12 when Mary and Joseph and Jesus went up to Passover? And they left him because they assumed that he was with somebody else. And there was three people in that group. Well, if John had been counting that group for the purpose of this story, he would have said how many? One. He would have said Joseph, the family of Joseph. And he's calling it by that. If you remember another story years before, Elkanah took Hannah and Penanai and all of Penanai's children and they go up to Jerusalem. If John had been counting that group, he would have counted it as one, Elkanah. He would have said there was Elkanah there. And so by that, he's acknowledging the presence of the family as well. And so Jesus takes this situation, this large group of people, this group of people that need food, and he breaks five loaves and two fish, and he feeds them. And I want to let you look at a couple of verses there in verse 26 and 27. Because the next day, this large group of people tracks Jesus down, and this is what Jesus says to them. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus uses two words here that challenge the reality of what is happening in these people's life. They just ate food. They wanted to eat food again. The same thing the children of Israel had done in the wilderness when God gave them manna. And Jesus gives them these words to challenge them in their perception of what is actually happening there. The first word, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but the first word, apolyme, speaks to death. He says, do not work for food that spoils, food that kills. Now, none of us would eat food intentionally that kills us, would we? None of us would do that. But then he says this, work for food that endures to eternal life. And the word endures there, meno, simply means this, to live. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's making a clear observation to this group of people that it's not the physical food that he is referencing. He is saying you are living for the things that will destroy you. You need to live for the things that will give you life. And there's a couple of ways to do that. And remember that. By seeking to satisfy self, they were killing self. And the idea there is death by a thousand cuts. And the second word he uses there speaks to life. They could live if they would deny themselves, and that is life by a thousand sacrifices. And we know that, don't we? We know that we feel more enlivened than ever when we serve. We know that we feel more giving than ever when we have shown compassion. But we have a hurdle to overcome, do we not? And the hurdle is satisfying self. 
And Jesus said, if all you do is consume that which will kill you, then you will be killed by it. It will consume you. And I think about it this past observation. We think of food. If you were to give a, a child a choice between candy and appropriate food, what are they going to choose? And by the way, I don't even ask about, have to ask about children. I could say that about us as adults, don't you? And after a while, our stomachs are hurting, our lives are hurting, and we know what's caused it. We know what caused it. And so what Jesus is doing is seeing this. He has performed this miracle of unimaginable sensation. Thousands of people are here. They've seen him feed them. And now he walks away from them. And they don't know what to do with him. So they go and they ask him, what are you going to do about this? And Jesus says, you're looking for the wrong thing. And I want to just think about this for just a minute. You and I have done the same thing, have we not? Have we not seen God do many wonderful things? Have we not seen God do miraculous works? And where do we find ourselves a week later, a month later, a year later? And saying, if you don't do this, then I'm not sure you're God. If you won't satisfy this need. And so now we come to the point in time where Jesus says that he is the bread of life. In verse 35 that we looked at earlier. And I want us to begin to see this as what he means by eternal life. And let me tell it to you this way. Let me read it. go back to verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. When we think of eternal life, most of us, our minds immediately go to heaven. We think of a place somewhere, someplace else. Uh, we think of all the terms and the ideas and the pictures that we've seen or we've imagined in our minds of heaven. But when Jesus is speaking of eternal life, he is not simply saying you're going to live after you've died. He is speaking of another reality. In fact, I want us to challenge this. The very word eternal itself means that it has what? We know it means it has no ending, but let me remind you of what else it means. It has no beginning. So when Jesus says you can have eternal life, we are what kind of beings? We are created beings. We have, a, we have a beginning. God, at some point in time, created us. We have a beginning. So when he says we can have eternal life, he is reminding us that the reality that God lives in, the reality that God exists in, is the reality that he is inviting us into. See, in my reality... If I can't perceive it, it's not real, or maybe I can imagine it, but then I have lines that I draw and, and places that I stop. But Jesus is challenging us to remind us that. And, and let me give you a couple of really quick illustrations that will show that. I'm going to slide that down a little bit. I'm hearing myself a little too much. But when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says to, uh, to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? What did Jesus tell him? We know this. He said, you must be what? Born again. And Nicodemus knew that he couldn't be born again. He gets a little sarcastic about it. But what Jesus was telling Nicodemus was, you need to accept a different reality, Nicodemus, than the one you live in. The reality that Nicodemus lived in was a reality in which if he did enough good things, then God would reward him. By the way, there's another story about a man who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And it's the young man who's done all of these good things. And do you remember Jesus' statement to him? We still kind of shake when we hear it, don't we? He says, you've got to sell everything you have and give it away. And what is, is Jesus telling him that he can't have money? Some of Jesus' followers, like ultimately Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, 
They obviously had money. We don't read where Jesus tells them to give all their, way, all their money away. He doesn't tell anybody else that. Why does he tell this guy that? By the way, Zacchaeus was wealthy, and Zacchaeus chose to give away some of his money, and Jesus said, that's great, but he didn't tell him to. So when he tells this guy that he can have eternal life by giving away his money, what he is doing to that man is saying this, your idea of eternal life, of pleasing God, is by your efforts and the things that you can, and I want you to hear this, the things that you can prove. And Jesus said, my idea, the reality of what eternal life is, is it's built on faith. And you need to leave what you are trying to prove and step out into faith. And boy, that is a challenging thought for us when we begin to see this and we begin to understand it. So I want us to say, when Jesus says this, go back to verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And I'm going to make two statements here that are difficult to swallow. But if you will talk to people and if you will look back in your own life at moments and times of need in your life, I believe that you can see these things in your life as well. Number one. Therefore, you will never go hungry if you are willing to trust God in the moments that you are hungry. You will never go hungry if you are willing to say to God, in this moment, I am hungry, and yet I believe you are present. You see, that's the opposite of the rich young ruler. He wouldn't have done that. He would have gone and proved it by buying something, by doing something. That's the opposite of Nicodemus. He would have proved it by going and performing some ritualistic work, and he would have proved that God was present. Here's the second one. We will never go thirsty if we are willing to believe that God is present with you in your suffering when you are thirsty. Now, I understand that that can sound like just a bunch of talk. But some of you ladies are reading the book, The Hiding Place, by Corey Ten Boom. And you know the story maybe of Corey Ten Boom and how her family suffered greatly at the hands of the Nazis as they protected Jewish lives, many of whom they had never met and had never saw. And they ended up, all of, almost all of her family perishing because of their willingness to give and their willingness to sacrifice for the lives of others. And the story, if you'll read the book, and I don't want to mess it up for you if you haven't read it, sorry, but... In that book, Corey Timboom has the multiple opportunities to go back and offer forgiveness to some of those same guards who horribly mistreated her and her sister. She has the opportunity to give what God has given to her to others. And this is why. Because in the moments, in those moments, Corey Timboom was hungry. She was thirsty. But she was willing to accept that God was present with her. And when we're willing to accept that God is present with us, then our lives are changed and we quit saying, God, do something to prove you're present, but we rest in His presence then. We rest in His moment. And I have to tell you, I'm a proof guy. I want something. I want to see something. I want a phone call. I want a text. But then you know what I do when I get those things? I begin to evaluate them. Was that really this? Was that really that? Is that enough? And what God is saying to the children of Israel in that day is that I am the bread of life. The very substance that gives you life 
It is me. And so as we look at this, and I want you to just think about it, here's a reminder. The Jews of that day, they thought their problem was who? The Romans. But you know who their great-grandparents thought the problem was? The Babylonians. And who their great-grandparents thought the problem was? The Midianites. And who their great-grandparents thought the problem was? Pharaoh. And who, Pharaoh, and who their great-grandparents thought the problem was? Esau. You know who else does that? I do. I look at the culture and I say, the culture's my problem. And I look at this person over here and I say, this person's my problem. And what God is saying to me, are you willing to rest in the reality of my presence? Are you willing to trust it? One of the things I wanted to teach today and I decided not to do it was on the miracles of, the, of Jesus feeding that group of people. And when it's all over, what does he tell the disciples to do? He says, go get a basket and pick up the fragments. And I'm going to challenge you here. There's some of us, God's told us to pick up a basket and go pick up the fragments, and we're complaining that we got fragments. Well, I wish I had this, and I wish I had that, and I wish there was more, and I wish I remember when this happened, and I remember when that happened, and I wish we could do this, and it ain't happening again, folks. Solomon says, by the way, good old days never actually existed, and it's a figment of your imagination. That's a harsh translation, but you can go read it if you'd like in the book of Ecclesiastes. So when Jesus gets to this point, he says to them, and we're going to move down to verse 53 as we wrap it up here. Because this is the point where it has to rest for you and I. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. When Jesus says this, is he talking about physically eating his body? I think this passage has already made it clear that that's not what he's talking about. Sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, what he's really talking about is the Lord's Supper, and he's saying we should participate in the Lord's Supper, and that that proves that we're children of God. But Jesus, there's two different words here. The first one is eat. That means literally physically consume, as you and I normally would do. And the second word means to gnaw or to chew. And what Jesus is saying to those Jews is the same challenge that John is giving to us. And it's this. Look back. Look at what God has done. And take who I am, who Jesus is, and see God's work through Jesus' lens, the lens of Jesus' life. And here's how it would have looked for them. For the Jews, it would have been this. And he actually tells them this in this passage. Go back to your stories. And everywhere you see the name Moses. For the name Moses substitute words like the power, the compassion, and the presence of God. Quit saying Moses led us out of Egypt. Say the compassion of God led us out of Egypt. Quit saying Moses gave us water in the wilderness. Say the power and the provision of God gave us water in the wilderness. When you go, go back to the David, and everywhere you say David, quit saying uh, David and say things like the mercy, the forgiveness, and the justice, or the equity of God. When you go back to the word Jeremiah, quit saying Jeremiah and say things like the humility, the presence, and the suffering of God. And when you and I do that, what does that look like for us? We have a tendency to go back, especially culturally, and say this period of time or that company 
or this event that happened, and we miss that it was the presence of God in our lives and that that is what is present and available for each one of us here today. God's presence has not vanished. God has not withdrawn himself. He is still very much present. His spirit is present in our lives as well. And the word that he gives us is this, in verse 56, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And I will tell you something. That's my problem. I struggle with remaining. A word that you could use there and substitute of that would be the word abide. I struggle with abiding. And let me give you a couple examples. I want the God who rains down fire on the wet sacrifice while 700 prophets look on in amazement. It's the kind of God I want. I'm not too excited, and I'm afraid of the God who will let me crawl off in my cave and cry because I don't think he's there. I want the God who will guide the stone to Goliath's forehead. And I am desperately afraid of the God who will allow me to miss a decade of my life while I hide from a king who is unjustly trying to kill me. You do realize more than likely from about 20 to 30, David hid from a madman. I want the God who gives Jacob 12 sons. And I'm afraid of the God who allows those sons to learn from their father's behavior so much so that they're willing to kill their own brother just to satisfy their desires. I struggle with remaining. I struggle with believing that God is present. If the external things are not happening for me, I don't want to believe that God is in control. But God has called us to remain in Him. And He's not only called us to remain in Him, He's called us to chew on that. He's called us to take Jesus, this life that we're portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and say that is our lens for viewing Scripture. That is our lens for viewing the world. And I'm just going to sit here and dwell on it. And I don't like that because I like being right. And I like getting what I want. And I like going where I want. But what God has called us to is to remain in Him. And His promise is if you'll do it, you won't be hungry, and you won't be thirsty. And he's not just talking about physical food. He's talking about the desires that drive us and demand from us. I challenge you today to allow yourself to remain in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, as we take your word and we allow it to challenge us, may it speak to us. May your compassion and your mercy Lord, they are fresh and new every morning. May we know them. May we recognize them. God, your promise is that you will never leave us or forsake us. And yet so often I go around demanding that I see you. And yet your promise reveals to me that the problem is with what I'm looking for. May your mercy be great and new as it always is. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and please sing a song of the invitation.